Welcome to Ask the Therapist, a monthly podcast for everyone who's interested in how our minds work, building resilience through journaling and all things therapy. I'm your host, Sarah Rees, a mental health nurse and CBT therapist with over 20 years of experience in the field of mental health. Hello and welcome to episode 43 of Ask the Therapist and it's the podcast's third birthday, so happy birthday podcast. I have been celebrating this last month by sharing some clips of my previous guests answering one of my favourite questions, which is, what would you say to your 15-year-old self? What would you say to your 15-year-old self? I'd love to know. So if you head over to my Instagram account, sarahdreese.co.uk, in the highlights section for the podcast, if you have a look in there, there's some templates where we've got the question and there's a space underneath for you to give your answer. And you can then share it on Instagram or send me a DM using the hashtag AskTheTherapist and I'll be sure to find it. And you can find the clips of my previous guests answering the question in the Reels section and I've scattered some in the grid as well. They've been really fun to listen back to. And this episode is a real birthday treat. I had the honour and the privilege to interview one of the most amazing people and minds that I know, Professor Paul Gilbert, OBE. I had the honour of training on his course over at Derby University in 2016 and it really had a huge impact on me professionally and personally and has really changed how I deliver therapy and changed a lot about how I live my life and some of the practices I have every day as well. Professor Paul Gilbert is founder of Compassion Focus Therapy and Compassionate Mind Training. He's also one of the founders of the Compassionate Mind Foundation, which is a brilliant website. It's got all the training on there and some resources. It's well worth going to have a look. He's author of a number of books, to name a few, The Compassionate Mind, Living Like Crazy, Distinctive Features for Compassion Focus Therapy, psychotherapy and counselling for depression, overcoming depression and a book that I recommend time and time again to people and it's what I often go back to which is called Mindful Compassion. This was co-authored with Chowden. He's also written a number of journal papers and research papers and he has a latest book out which is Compassion Focused Therapy, Clinical Practice and Applications and that is on its way to me via Amazon as we speak. So I can't wait to get my hands on that. I thoroughly enjoyed interviewing Paul today. He gives some really useful insights. He's really fun to interview and his knowledge is just amazing, as you can expect. And I know you're going to get a lot from it. So sit back, grab a coffee and enjoy the episode. And if you have any feedback for us or any questions, do drop me an email at inquiries at sarahdreese.co.uk or you can DM me over at Instagram and I will be sharing any feedback with Paul. I hope you enjoy. Firstly, thank you very much for joining me today on Ask the Therapist. It's lovely to have you here. So one of the first questions I often ask um, my guests and something I'm really curious about because I, I think it's kind of quite a strange job that we do as therapists but um, is how you become became a therapist. I'm curious to know how that developed. I've been reading some of your work over the last um, few weeks, kind of getting a refresh. And then I read, I hope I've got this right, that you did an 
economics degree initially and you've had some dreams about being a guitarist I can see a guitar in the background maybe in a rock band and then so I'm curious how that went to psychology and becoming a therapist. Well firstly Sarah thank you very much for inviting me onto your brilliant podcast which you do and also I know that you've done training in CFT and promoted that ex brilliantly so it's a wonderful opportunity for me to come and talk to you so it's lovely to meet up again as well. Um, so how did I become, well, interestingly, when I was young, I always had a sort of interest in people and was quite a person, person kind of person. And um, then in the 60s, when I was doing my A-levels, psychology really wasn't much of a discipline. And I was studying economics at A-level and planning to, you know, go into business or whatever and make a bit of money as you do as a young person. And um, I did think about psychology, but all my tutors said, oh, no, you don't want to do that. You, you'd be much better off doing, you know, doing your basic economics degree. So that's what I did. But while I was doing that, I was always sort of had an eye on the psychology course. And I read this book by um, uh, Colin Wilson called The Further Reaches of Human Nature, just taken by it, really. And um, I thought I wanted to. <laughs> so anyway, I thought, well, what should I do? Um, so I knew there were a couple of places in the country that did what was called changeover degrees, where they would take somebody from a non-psychology background and uh, train them up in psychology. And also I was beginning to think about clinical psychology, but to begin with, I wasn't. I was just thinking maybe social or something like that. So I got my degree and I applied to Aston, which had a, 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 um, a sort of a combined psychology and economics what Sussex, which is the one I wanted to do, was much more basic science with brain studies and all kinds of stuff. The funny thing was, <laughs> I got rejected. Oh, my gosh. I bet they're kicking themselves now. But and my parents in those days, because this is 73 by now, my parents in, in those days were in Dubai. So I flew out to Dubai for a holiday after my degree. I finished my degree. and well, That was great. And then I think it was about mid-August, I got this... Um, phone call to say, look, somebody's dropped out for the course and you're on the training list. Do you want to come for an interview? So my father arranged for me to fly back quite quickly. So I flew back to Sussex and had an interview and they accepted me on the course. So I did the Sussex MSc and subsequently I discovered that um, Stuart Sutherland, who was a bit, he wrote, he had a, a manic depression problem that he's written about, not secret, was told that one of the people had uh, dropped out from the MSc, and here was a list of uh, individuals to to choose from. And he just said, "Oh, I don't know. We'll have him." Wow! Gosh! What? Well, you know, isn't that amazing? That's the story, whether it's true or not. I don't know, but it's a nice story, isn't it? So anyway, there we were. And uh, but actually, I failed my neurophysiology paper. Uh, pretty well in other papers, but not in the neurophysiology. So I had to stay on at Sussex for a year. And this is the change over degree Sussex MSc. And um, so I had to pay for myself. So I went and worked as a psychiatric nurse, did night duty in um, in Brighton. And that was quite interesting because Brighton was an interesting place in those days because all the people would <laughs> come down from London, take drugs and go crazy on the beach and spend uh, the weekend in our hotel. <laughs> but it was very, very interesting. And so I quite learned quite a lot. And uh, because it was night duty, you would sit around and talk to the clients all the time. And so that was great, really, for me. So then I did manage to, I did a lot of neurophysiology and then um, applied and originally went to Birmingham, but that didn't work out and transferred to 
Edinburgh uh, with Ivy Blackburn. And Ivy Blackburn, of course, was doing the first uh, cognitive therapy trial. And um, the rest, as they say, is history, which I can talk about if you interested. But that was the story. So, yeah, then I went to Edinburgh and studied, did a PhD on depression. Wow. And what, what's driven you in your career? We were just talking a little bit beforehand and your retirement doesn't sound very much like retirement. You've worked hard. You've done so much. What's been the driving force? Well, yeah, I think there's a lot of things, isn't it, really? About it's to do with personality, about it's to do with fascination. Uh, partly it's to do with um, narcissistic self-promotion. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, I think that one of the interesting things is that in economics, you're taught right from day one, you have to learn how things interact, right? You have to build models of economies and so on and so on. When I came to psychology, oh, we can't do that. No, it's too complicated. You're going to do a course on learning and a course on psycholinguistics and a course on social psychology. Uh, but yeah, but how does it actually work? And how does the brain, oh, I don't know, it's too complicated. You can't do that. So I was always interested in model building, um, was very interested in model building. And trying to get a picture of actually how things work and fit together. And Sussex was very much into classical conditioning. So that's always stayed with me, the importance of the body. You know, the body keeps the score. That's kind of stuff. So I've been very some body work. Uh, <clears throat> so what drives me is just an absolute fascination with, um, with that and uh, with, with how the mind works, really. Yeah, that's fantastic. And thinking about, and this might take you back to the other point, is that lots of CBT therapists find the way to compassion-focused therapy. I know when I did um, my training in CBT, I then went, um, I was working in a very uh, deprived area of Manchester where no, I'd trained for 18 months. I did the IAPT course. It's quite intensive. And um, the clients that I worked with had been really hand-picked. So they just had panic disorder. I don't know how they found them. And then just, you know, very fit all the models and then when I was let out into the real world it um, didn't look like the models and the books and how I've been taught and that's probably how I found my way into compassion focused therapy but what's your I'm interested in what's your take on why so many CBT therapists kind of find the way to CFT well CBT is a bit of a sad story in a way because we like with Tim Beck and stuff like that and it has an interesting story that um, story that uh, he um, <clears throat> was doing a demonstration behind a one-way screen, and they had people from all over America come to watch him do demonstrations, and they had these group watching him do a demonstration. And he did this really nice piece of work, which he thought it was a nice piece of work, and he helped clients identify some of their automatic thoughts and how that was linked to uh, various underlying beliefs and how these beliefs had been rooted in their history and everything. And so he thought oh, that's great. So he came out from around the uh, out of the kazoo and he looked at these people and they all looked at him blank and they said uh, well what, what's that we just watched and they said well that's that's cognitive therapy and they said no but it's counseling so he taught us right at the beginning which has been lost i think personally uh that actually getting to know your client was really crucial and that cbt assumes you have good counseling skills it assumes that you you're good at that kind of stuff and then beginning to use Socratic questions, guided discovery within that context. But it's sort of moved on a little bit like that, and it's become a bit more like a factory, boom, 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 boom. Yeah, it definitely wasn't part of my training. I'd done – my background's in mental health nursing, and I'd done counselling training and came into it. But it, that was just a fluke that I'd done that 
counselling training. Yeah, but it's, it's it is really the foundation, I think. So when people f- first come across CFT, what they discover actually is some basic counselling stuff again, of actually slowing down, taking an interest. What guided discovery actually is is about understanding people and helping them begin to understand themselves and so on. And that takes time, you know. This trying to push people through in six sessions. And Tim was actually never really was always ambivalent about manuals and that kind of stuff. There's a wonderful, can't remember the title of it now, but it's in my new book, Interview with Him, about five years ago and some of his reflections. So I think um, CBT is this this rapid turnover. I mean, you can understand it because people are wanting to get um, access to some kind of psychological help. You know, if you think 10, say 10% of your population, and it's more than that really, of psychological problems, well, in a million people, you've got 100,000 people, right? So it's huge. Uh, so you can understand the push for it. But um, I think the problem is that, uh, as you say, in the real world, uh, people have got complex, multiple problems, and uh, and it just takes time. Therapy takes time, not even a thing. So that I think people like. So they like the slowing down aspect of it. They like the more counselling side to it. They like the focus on motivation rather than just the, 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 the strength of your belief, actually the motivation, the ability to genuinely feel a compassion, motivation, the desire to be helpful, the, the recognition that that also depends upon a certain kind of physiological ability, you know, vagus nerve and all that. So they begin to get into that feel about motivational change, motivational switching has to underpin cognitive switching and people kind of like that. Yeah, I think the neuroscience as well and helping people understand the brain has been, you know, something I is, was really transformative, helping people see they have really tricky brains. Yeah, I mean, I think that's very important. I don't think it was ever meant, but the think good, feel good sort of Americanization, well, it was Americanizing, but um, that sort of hype stuff hasn't done CBT any good, any favors at all because. Um, Tim was much more nuanced than that. I mean, he had an evolutionary view and so on. So, um, yeah, so the idea is just get people to think differently and they would change. That was never really his view. His his view was that if you help people understand how the thinking contributes to their distress and that and they can stand. So it was much more softer than what you sometimes hear now. But this CBT um, is, is extremely useful. I mean, it's a very, very useful sort of, um, you know, if you really use guided discoveries, Socratic question, behavioural experiments, uh, as they were designed to be used, they can be incredibly helpful to people. What was Aaron Beck like? Had you met him a number of times? Yeah, yeah, he was, well, he was always very kind to me. He just, he, he just reissued the 84 depression book, and on the back, he wrote a very lovely endorsement. Uh, of it. He, was, he was always extremely... Um, good and supportive for me we had lots of discussions about evolutionary approaches and he uses evolutionary approaches quite a lot although people don't always realize that well i'll be interested to go back to that and have a reread in kind of as we kind of develop as therapists you kind of well you're just forever learning aren't you the courses and the training and the development doesn't end and one of the things that comes up a lot has come up a lot for me and people i supervise is that as we grow and get new knowledge and maybe learn more about compassion-focused therapy, we kind of look back over the clients that we worked with and think, oh, God, you know, I wish I'd known 
that then and feel like we've really done people a disservice. How, what would you advise therapists around that? I saw that question. That was a wonderful question. So the first thing is actually that view, that's fantastic, isn't it? You know, I wish I'd known that then because then I could have been more helpful. But that is the way it, it always has to be. It can never be any different to that, right? And when I was trained, because <laughs> I, I was lucky after I'd done the, my, start, my PhD and I was saying, I went on and did um, group psychodynamic training for a few years and I worked for five years in a Jungian day hospital. There's a lot of Jungian training. Um, but um, so <laughs> I'd only been qualified about six months working on the acute unit and the, and the, patient, the people there were really quite tricky, you know, abuse and all kinds of things. So I went to my supervisor, who was a lovely woman, she was uh, an analyst really, and I said, look, you know, these clients are on this inpatient unit, they're really struggling and... Um, I find it qualified. I don't, I don't know what the hell I'm doing now. After time, I it's really they, there must be somebody else they can see, somebody that's got more experience than me because these are really quite severe. You know, the suiciding, goodness knows what. And she looked at me. She said, "Well, there's only two of us." I said, "Yeah, but there must be somebody else, surely." She said, "Well, look, I suppose you could look at you think about it. We'd probably all do a lot better if we had Sigmund Freud, but the problem is he's dead. There is only you. There is no one else, right? And the thing is." All you can do is to be the best six-month qualified therapist you can be. And for sure, in 20 years, you'll probably know more and be better. But you can't have it today. And that is one of the lessons of being the therapist, is actually don't get caught up in narcissistic over-identification or feeling you should know, be more, have more, do more. That is a trap you do not want to catch. Okay, and in 20 years, you'll look back and you, and this is what she said, you'll look back and you'll think, oh, my goodness, if only I'd known that. And hopefully you do, because if you don't do that, then you haven't moved, you haven't improved at all. That is very true. So the next part of the question, however, so but the, the idea is that that's a good thing to be doing that, to realise how much more you know now and how you are better now, and in another 10 years you'll do the same thing again, but then you're doing clients a disservice. Well, that then can become a source of guilt or disappointment or upset. And that you do need to be careful about because then you get into self-criticism and all kinds of stuff, which is not helpful at all. So <clears throat> not to think you've done them a disservice, but always think that at the time you try to help them the best way you could. And yes, now you might have other techniques. Therapies have moved on. The science has moved on. We've all learned more. I've learned a lot more from, you know, all kinds of people, Steve August and all the others. But it takes time. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's really useful. And one of the reasons I asked that is because I remember you teaching it on the course and it been really so useful for me. And actually, sometimes when I find myself catching, going into that kind of self-doubt and stuff, really just working a lot more on me so I can be the best I can be in that moment. I mean, you know, we, as you know, we talked about this on the course, you know, I've lost people to suicide and you look back and think, oh, I made a mistake there, I should have done that. I mean, a case I often talk about is um, a young lad who I was uh, working with and he had to move back with his parents because he lost his job and things and he was quite a shy sort of chap. And um, <clears throat> anyhow, so we'd worked to develop his confidence and so on and he'd gone off and applied for this job and um, came back and said he thought he'd done very well and uh, he was very pleased with himself at the interview and they'd started to talk to him about, you know, when you start here and when you start here. So I think they were only talking to me like, because I think they have, they're going, you know, they're going to get this job and then I can move out, you know. So, and I would say, oh, that's great. And haven't you done? Because well, I was trying to re-woof. 
<laughs> All the hard work because his confidence was wasn't good, and he really struggled to make himself go to the interview. Two days later, he was dead. So and he'd uh, obviously hadn't got the job, and then guessed himself his father's car. So a court case comes up. Obviously, it's maybe a kind of thing. So I went to go and sit the psychiatrist was the guy who consulted the psychiatrist was going to court and everything. And I said, I'm terribly sorry. I made this awful mistake because I should have asked him. I should have asked him, what, but what happens if you don't get the job? And what are you going to do? And how are you going to be? And how are you going to cope with not getting a job? And I should have done this. And I should... He says, stop. Are you telling me seriously that having a 10-minute or a 15-minute conversation with you about how he's going to cope would have saved his life? Are you serious? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Please don't be so narcissistic. We're not gods, you know. This guy, that guy had very serious problems and all kinds of stuff, and it's a great tragedy. But you know, don't believe 15 minutes of you chatting about how he would cope. That was a really a wake up call. And uh, and he went on to say, look, if you're going to work with real mental health problems, uh, you will lose people because you know we often think that these severe severe depressions, which are my area, they're killers. They will kill you. They will kill some people. You know, it was again a wake-up call about the same kind of thing you're talking about, which is let's just be do the best we can. Make sure that obviously you do all your risk assessments and all the right things. Of course, that's correct. But if you're going to work with people who've got major mental health difficulties, they are risky, and you do everything you can. But occasionally, over a forty-year life, you will sadly lose people, and your ability to cope with that is very important. And not to start, you know, bashing yourself on the head because it's not. That's a disservice to them as well. If only I, then I could have saved you. I, 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 me, me, me. It's not like that. You know, it's a, the ability to grieve for the pain that person was in. That's the most important thing. I think that leads us on to on my next question, which is hopefully not too tricky for you, which is why compassion? Can you tell us about why it's so important that we develop compassion with our clients and for ourselves, I think? Well, there's a, yeah, it's a really interesting story because if you're wanting the more personal side to it, which I think you do, a um, couple of things really. So um, this was a lady who uh, had had a very difficult background of being adopted and into a difficult family and thought she shouldn't have been born and all that stuff. But she'd made quite a good uh, relationship with her. She had a good relationship with her husband and kids and all that. So you could do the cognitive stuff. And she'd been in and out of hospital, a lot of suicide attempts. And the psychiatrist said, I don't know what we can do, but see what you can do. So <laughs> and she used to pay me. I was oh, I can't, you know, I know you're trying to help me, but I can't. I've got to kill myself. So we'd have to find up GP. And, uh, so it was quite tricky. But um, so one day then we were doing this cognitive stuff of actually looking at some of the thoughts that preoccupied her. I shouldn't have been born. I'm not really wanted. I, I'm just a fake. You know, people say they love me, but. I think that's only because they all oh, that was tough. And we got her to be able to say, well, but you know, if you stand back from that, you know, do you could you see that your 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 husband has behaved in a way that shows that he loves you and so on? So you could do we could do all of that sort of checking out what's the evidence for it. She said, Yes, I can see it really, I suppose, but it doesn't make any difference. And so I said to her, Well, okay, um, I don't know why I said this to her. It was one of those things where, what am I going to do now? I don't know what to do. <laughs> so I said to her, how, how do you hear them in your mind? You know, how, how do you hear those coping thoughts when you really think to yourself, well, actually, you know, my husband's 
stood by me and he does care about me and he is worried about me and and so on and so on. How do you hear them in your mind? She said, what do you mean, how I actually hear them? And I said, yeah, speak them out. Tell me how you speak them out as you actually hear me. She was a little bit embarrassed, but she said, okay. Come on, you're doing cognitive therapy, aren't you? You got a husband who loves you? You got three lovely children? For you? Is that how you hear them? She said, yes, I'm doing cognitive therapy. I know, I've got to, I've got to make myself believe this. So, oh, my goodness. I thought, no wonder you're not going to. So I said, well, what? Okay, what would happen if you can't keep the same information in your COVID thoughts, but you change the tone, you know? Let's imagine a part of you that's really compassionate and wants to support you, understands how depressed you've been and what a struggle that's been for you and is genuinely interested in helping you. What, ha what would happen if you created that kind of tone in your mind? And she said, I'm not doing that. Why would I want to do that? That's pathetic. I've never been kind to myself. I can't see how, I don't deserve it anyway, but how on earth would that help me? I've just got to make myself believe this stuff. So that, that was the second shot. The first shot was really the real hostility was being carried in the emotion, not in the content. The second shot was this real resistance. They didn't want to do it. And the third shot was when we did start to do it, oh boy, it really opened up a big, big issue of trauma in the caring system because in any emotional system, be it a sexual system or a caring system or an assertive system, if you've got a lot of trauma in that system, the moment you start to trigger it, up it comes. So the problem with compassion is that when you start compassion as a therapy, you don't get into, oh, let's be kind to myself, isn't this wonderful, isn't this nice? You don't get that. You get grief, you get rage, you get doubt, you get fear. All the stuff that's coded in that, you know, if you've been abused or neglected, that's all coded in your attachment system, right? That's where it is. And so that was the third shock, really. And so CFT really became partly a way of detoxifying the attachment system um, so that people could begin to generate a more compassionate tone to themselves, a more helpful uh, motivation to themselves than just trying to force themselves. And then I'll give you one more example. So when people are very depressed, you want to get them out of bed because otherwise if they lay there ruminating. So you get them out of bed, do some stretches, a bit of yoga, have a cup of tea. Stretching is quite important. The movement is quite important. So we know we've known that for a long time. So there we are. So we had a little note that she put on the side of her bed that when she woke up to get out of bed, do this, these stretches and have a, make a cup of tea. So anyway, great. So she comes back the next week. How did you get on? She said, yes, I, I, I remember when I was in bed and I, I saw the note, I made myself get up. So I said, well, what, what? So what went through your mind? She said, yes, I saw the note. And I said, come on, get out of bed, you fucking lazy bastard. <laughs> I thought, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. Where did that come from? Said, well, you know, that's the truth, isn't it? That's the truth. Get out of bed, do some stretches. So what became very interesting, I became very interested, is this hostility was sort of underneath, it was in the emotional motivational system, it wasn't really so much in the cognitive system. What I find really interesting is that lots of people, until you ask those questions, don't have awareness of mind. They don't know how they're talking to themselves, do they? But I do remember learning about self-criticism and then thinking, oh, I don't do that. I'm okay. And then it caught up with me and I was like, oh, my God, I need to work on this. So it's awareness of mind, isn't it? It's absolutely brilliant. Brilliant point you made, Sarah. Yeah, it's mind awareness. And you tune, that's what guided discovery is in a way. 
of you tune people into that, and they're often not aware of the hostility of their criticism. I think criticism is okay and it's going to help them, but actually the hostility in the criticism is pretty awful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really detrimental to our mental and physical well-being, isn't it? Hugely. Yeah, yeah. Do you think there are questions that we are not asking in therapy? So if you could, you know, think, I mean, if you think about therapists, are there questions that you think we should all be asking a little bit more of or there are questions that we avoid? Yeah, I think it's all, it's, if you want to do the CFTP, you'd always find where is the caring motivational system, where is the threat system. Those two, you're always interested in those two. See, so what is your greatest fear of? could be of change, of being compassionate, of giving up self-criticism, blah, 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 blah. So the first thing is always find out what the threat system is up to. And the second thing is, where is the support system, the caring system, the system that kind of picks you up? Because, you know, self-criticism will kick you, whereas your compassion will pick you up and support you and guide you and, and carry you a bit. So find out how easy is it for them to be caring? How easy is it for them to generate genuine compassion motivation? If you've had somebody who's abused, right, and is feeling um, very bad with themselves or guilty, whatever it is, how easy is it for them to take a, a genuine compassion orientation to their experience of abuse? And what you find, of course, is for a lot of people, they can't do it. So they're trying to do exposure, whatever it is, but actually there's no system of caring or support to hold it. Um, um, so those uh, and for non-CFT therapists what you find is they very rarely do any work on creating a secure base safe haven that sort of con context that holds and cares and supports and guides and and so on I know sometimes uh, when I do the the model about explaining CFT and I get to the soothing system and I just kind of say what it's about and people just burst into tears. Yes. I think, yeah, that's a brilliant point you make. Grieving is incredibly important in CFT, the ability to grieve for that inner loneliness and that sense of that you may be carried or that you're not really lovable or there's something wrong with you or whatever. The, the ability to grieve. And that, again, was a bit of a, a shock because... Um, when particularly if you're working with people who have been traumatized um when they start to grieve i mean it is this whole body you know the body just solves it's not like a few tears they just it's like the body breaks you know it breaks open all that pain come breaks open. so that also was something that i hadn't actually experienced just doing um cbt of this real deep felt um sadness grieving and how did you manage holding that level of emotion well, again, I think I had, because of my counselling background, I was kind of able just to sit there. And I mean, as you know, with the client that we show in the training, and this went on for some weeks, and um, you just need to be present. It's called being present to them. So they are having an experience, which in attachment theory, you're providing, in a sense, a secure base and safe haven as a container for their journey. So grief is a journey. It's not like a panic attack where you go in and you kind of, but grieving is a journey. It's a process of changing a whole range of uh, processes within the caring and so, well, within the social relating systems, really a whole series of processes are changing. So, so grief, any kind of grief, um, it's a process. It has a beginning of stages and you have to go through it. So it's important to help therapists realize that. It's not like trying to change a panic attack. It's a very different process. 
and it's just learning to to be there and to be able to tolerate it without i think the other thing that you sort of indicated in a way is don't put pressure on yourself to make the client experience or do something right you guide them of course you do that's what guided discovery is but don't put pressure on yourself that you've got to move this along you've got to make this happen you've got to make that happen you've got to stop and cry and you've got to blah, blah, blah. Uh, things unfold in the way that they unfold you know it's holding it's part of the journey that you go on together yeah and lots of people listening to this will be interested in therapy I think we've been really selling it to people haven't we (laughs) somebody was listening to this interested in maybe having their own therapy what would you want them to know what would you kind of advise them to do to get started or to be able to engage in the process Oh, yes. Well, the, of course, the great, the great difficulty with it is, of course, there's not that many trained therapists like you. I mean, you're a well-trained therapist and so on, but there's not that many of uh, your gems like you around. It is great. I mean, the usual things, I'm afraid, is to you know check out with your GP. But also on the Compassion of Mind website, we now have a register. Now, we're not endorsing therapists because we can't do that. But therapists who have done some training and want to make it known that they will try and provide compassion-type therapists. Um, there is a register on the Compassion of Mind website. And as you say, it's growing, but we don't, at the moment, regulate it in terms of accrediting or that because we're just too small. And for new therapists start, starting out, do you have any advice for new therapists? Yeah, look, I would say for new therapists, look, Think about it like this, you know, there's something like 300 different schools of therapy, right? People put it 400, some people are less, but um, there are wisdoms in all of them because, you know, and really try to start with the fact that we need to understand a little bit about how minds work. That's why CFT is very strongly into science. We think about how motives work, how emotions work, how things like empathy and reasoning work, all that stuff. So try and think to yourself, well, the first thing is for me to try to understand the mind of the person that's sitting in front of me. So rather than thinking about what school do I need, what set techniques do I need, start with trying to understand that person and helping them to reflect and think about themselves. If, if you can do nothing else, then that would be that would be terrific. And then the next set of skills is really helping people to think about what they might need in order to progress on the journey of change. Now, maybe they will need to learn how to challenge their thoughts. Maybe they will need how to learn to be more compassionate to themselves. Maybe they'll learn, need to learn how to be more assertive, whatever. But you're working with them to thinking about how, how can we understand you and how can we think about what would help you on your journey to deal with whatever it is you're wanting to deal with. And only at that point do you then start to refer to whatever school that appeals to you. Mm. so it's good to get that foundation and and build on top of that and it is a lifetime of training isn't it and developing so as you look back over your clinical career what would you say you've learned most from the people that you've worked with either clients or colleagues it's a wonderful question um just about everything (laughs) i mean yes of course you pick up stuff from the you pick up stuff from the trainings of course you do but at the end of the day if you're open to allow your client to educate you, because every single client will give you something slightly different, just a little texture here, a little texture there. It's a little bit like, if any of you are musicians, 
it's like playing guitar, you know, you go and talk to other guitarists and you say, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, can you do that? Oh, oh, that's interesting. Oh, that. Oh, God, I didn't know that. So, you know, and over the years, you just get better with your technique. You play more things. You blah, 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 blah. So all training is a little bit, all life is a little bit the same, is that everybody has something to offer you if you are open to it. So that's, that's the, the, the first thing, really. And then the next thing is how they affect you. I think one of the things we don't talk enough about therapists is that there's something very odd about us, really. I mean, why do we want to spend ourselves listening to other people's pain, you know, year in, year out? I mean, what? why are we going to get a proper job? I mean, it's ridiculous. It is interesting, isn't it? It's very interesting. And um, when I started my psychodynamic training, I had this French psychodynamic. That's near his very strong French accent. He said, um, so how many of you are voyeurs? Are you voyeurs? Anybody in the room, are you a voyeur? Like, you know, because we're young and no, no, not four years. Uh, anybody like to go into their friends' houses and wonder what goes on in the other rooms? No. He said, then please don't become a therapist. Because if you have no fascination in the mind of people, you're no good. Yeah. <laughs> it is fascination, isn't it? And curiosity. Yeah. You need this basic curiosity. And your client begins to see they are a source of your interest. They are a source of fascination. They're not just another case coming through. You chuck all the stuff at them. They actually are a unique human being that have a unique story. Uh, and it's like you're reading another novel. You know, they're a new person, story, new, all kinds of things going on. So that, I think, is very, very important. But, um, <clears throat> you know, we do hear a lot of awful things. And um, it's about how you sustain yourself. With that, and uh, and I, we find, I'm sure you find this as well, that the therapists that tend to struggle more are the ones that are always trying to achieve something and do something and do something and do something. But those that are just stay with the client and are just fascinated by the client and are on their journey, um, they're less likely to to get burnt out. It's the ones that are always struggling to change, make this happen, make that happen. That's when trouble. Yes, yeah, and I think that sometimes happens if you work in an IAP service, and you can be thrown into that modality, don't can't you? But it's the stepping back and just being with sometimes hugely important. Yeah, and I think the key issue is always remembering that for all of us, really, whether it's we think about capitalism or poverty or whatever it is, social systems really causes a lot of the the pains that we feel actually, you know, and it, you can be caught up in a system that puts pressure on you. Um, and it's important to realise that the pressure is coming from the system and it's not about you. Yes, yes, that's an interesting point. Yeah, yeah. Do you think it's important that therapists, CFT therapists or all therapists kind of apply it to themselves? Because, you know, like C CBT, you don't have to have your own therapy, do you? But I think that's unique. Most therapies, you do have to have your own therapy. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, it's it's recommended, though, in CBT. I mean, James Bennett-Levy has written the Inside Out books and, and so on and so on. It is certainly recommended you should have some experience of your own therapy and yeah. certainly should use that as your own guide for life. So it's not very good when I, mean, I know this. The CBT therapists wanted their own therapy, so they went and saw a psychedelic therapist because they said, oh, I don't want to do CBT. Um, 
<laughs> That's quite fun. So the key thing then is if you can't make your techniques work for you, then what are you doing, right? Helping If you're doing CBT, then if you're able to see how paying attention to what you think, being um, able to stand back, doing guided discovery on yourself, maybe writing some letters to yourself or whatever techniques you, and they're helpful to you, um, that will really help you in your therapy. But if you're somebody who doesn't use them yourself, uh, I think therapy then becomes more mechanical. The other thing is that, you know, mindfulness now is really quite an important part of CBT, I think. And you really should have a, your own personal practice. And in CFT, as you know, Sarah, we suggest quite strongly you have your own uh, compassion practice because it does change you. Yes, yeah. My background was in nursing and then CBT. And so I was kind of always very full on working long shifts, then, then do, do, do. And when I hit four, and then I did the CFT training. And then a couple of years later, I hit 40 and developed a thyroid condition and then celiac and like the wheels fell off at 40. And I really had to change how I kind of care for myself and think about my own well-being and it's it's and I wish I'd done it years ago you know in terms of applying what I know to myself it's been you know made me a much better therapist well I think my clients say the same but also I think that my clients can tell when you practice what you're talking about as well and they'll ask you for your experiences and you know when they first start off with mindfulness which is kind of the foundation of um, compassion mind training you know there's blocks and struggles that regularly come up in that training and you need to know about them and people can tell if you've never done it can't they they certainly can yeah they certainly can and uh, I think it's such a good point that you make and also using self-care to be genuinely self-care and not just to apply a set of techniques to yourself because you're supposed to do that. That's what they say I've got to do, practice it on myself. Because if you don't, it all comes back to motivation, doesn't it? You know, if you don't really have that motivation to genuinely take care of yourself, I mean, it's a very ancient process. You know, you can go back in evolution. I mean, even birds, you know, preen themselves and keep themselves clean, don't they? And make, get rid of all the bugs and all the stuff like that. So self care physical self-care is something all animals have to do and we just have to self-care for our minds so we just have to just be aware where some of the toxins might have been or where we're not really feeding the good part and we're letting the threat system get a bit too heavy so yeah it's a very important point i definitely when i started really applying it to myself i i did it out of fear because i wasn't well and everything else didn't work and i thought oh god now i really have to apply this mindful stuff so I did it out of fear initially and then had to kind of work on letting go of the fear that's right and I think the key I mean I didn't know it would, but the ability to sit down and just imagine a part, a part of you or a compassion imaging saying oh, what a terrible thing you're going through Sarah this is so different so that empathic connection really is you is the first a really feeling that you can allow yourself to imagine or be with the fact that this is bad you know i'm going through a lot of pain right now um rather than fighting with it i mustn't have it but no no it, it is it is bad but that that sense of a compassion to that pain that empathic connection to the pain compassion the empathic connection to i'm actually really quite fine right now 
you know, and it, that's a first step, really, um, because you're not trying to soothe things away, which is often what people get confused about. Soothing grounds you, but it's not to soothe it away. It's really to in, it, to give you the courage to hold and to tolerate. That's what it's there to do. Well, it's the first um, psychology of compassion, isn't it? That turning towards the struggle. Turning towards your pain, grounding, containing it not trying to keep it away um it's it's very important yeah very very important yeah and if you think i'm sure you can well i know you've read lots and lots of books haven't you <laughs> but if you could recommend a few books that you think have been really kind of fundamental to and very important that we should all read what what would they be well therapy books i suppose a book which really impressed me very when i was younger therapist was yalom's book existential psychotherapy it was 1980s, so it's quite old now. Um, but um, that was really, as a therapy book, I thought that was good. But obviously, then there's, you know, you've got Tim Beck's book of 79, the depression book, one of the first really major um, CBT books and so forth. So that, that's important. Also, there's a book by Gene Knox called uh, Attachment and Archetype, and more recently, Graham Music's book. So I read a lot of, I read quite a lot of stuff on the attachment stuff. Um, because I think it's really helps you in terms of clinical process. I mean, it's not not terribly technique oriented, but it will help you in terms of because you can learn your techniques, go to workshops and all the rest of it. But um, <clears throat> these books, I think, you might find quite helpful. So Yalom, I liked Yalom because it talks about the basic human um, existential issues, death, loneliness, meaning, and so forth. Uh, and as I say, I like the Jungian stuff. Jung is a bit difficult to read in the raw, so you have to really read other people. Then. But I think you'd enjoy Gene Knox's book on archetype and attachment and also um, uh, Anthony Stevens' book on the, the nature of the self, which was quite an important book for me when I was younger, The Archetype of the Self. So there, those are a couple of books which I think are quite Fantastic. Thank you. And thinking about the direction of therapy and psychology, what do you think we should be looking out for or keeping an eye on? How do you think it's going to develop going forward? Well, it's very interesting. We are fast approaching a much more biopsychosocial approach. Yeah. So if you think about things like Steve Porges's work or Daniel Siegel's work or Consolenzo's book, he's just brought this book out on the, the neuroscience of psychotherapy, we are beginning to need to understand what interventions help people to change their brains and their bodies. The whole issue of embodiment now is becoming really, really quite important. And that you know, there's a little bit of evidence coming that if people do not change physiologically, then they either don't change at all or they don't have sustained change. Um, Patrick Stephan in America has done some very interesting work on CFT and shown that if people change, they also have change in heart rate variability. But if they don't do change heart rate variability, they don't. The whole issue of neuroplasticity, I think, is very, very interesting. So that that's coming. And I don't think we can avoid the body for too much longer, to be honest. I went to a very interesting um, conference. Uh, I think it was on by the Royal Society of Medicine, but I might be wrong about that, but whatever. And they were talking about long COVID and the depression associated with COVID. And a lot of these individuals have got problems with their immune system. I mean, you know, these viruses really mess up your immune system and there's a big link between the immune system and depression. So one of the key things is us to begin to understand that depression is a multifactorial, you know. There's many, many 
paths into depression. You know, women can get depressed in the menopause, or all kinds of things can trigger it. Psychological therapies can be helpful, but they need to be recognizing that it's not just it's not all just about cognitive beliefs or motivation of systems. The the mind and the body are very complicated. So, I think that is the future coming, and we're also looking at epigenetic changes. Actually, we're doing some studies on epigenetic change in CFT. Wow! So it's it's that kind of like feeling and embodying compassion, and yoga, I suppose, will be big what do you think about nutrition and you know because a lot of serotonin is made in the gut and we just you know to neglect that don't we yeah very very important that's coming as well and as you say the gut there's a big link between the gut and the vagus nerve and various other things so the kind of bacteria you've got in your gut oh i mean the thing is we're beginning to realize just how complex these systems are i mean um, Ed Watkins and um, Newbold's done a really interesting paper on um, reviewing psychotherapies, and they're not as good as we think they are. You know, I mean, you know, uh, quite a lot of depressed people don't do that well with these psychological therapies. And when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense because you know you're putting people into trials, but you know some of them have got really tricky backgrounds, some of them are problems of poverty, some you know all kinds. You know, some people are. On inflammatory diets, and that some people are very sensitive to inflammatory diets. Some people can eat all the pastas they like and never get large, but other people just need to look at a, a, a pizza and they sort of put on three kilos. So there are all these fascinating individual variations. So we have to think about uh, a biopsychosocial approach, really, that the mind and the body are all one, and uh, how we create these interconnections. So that's why CFT spends a lot of time talking about what are the physiological systems you're trying to hit. You know, Tanya Singh has done this some fascinating work looking at empathy training, compassion training, and mindfulness training, and they all stimulate slightly different systems in your brain and body. So some individuals you're going to really want to be stimulating quite a lot on training, quite a lot in mindfulness maybe, because or but others you might want to do a lot more on empathy training because if people can do compassion but they don't, they can't mentalize, it's a problem, right? So you're going to have to maybe teach them how to mentalize and when they can mentalize, that has a range of physiological effects as well. Mm, so exciting times. Extremely exciting times. And we've got to give up all these tribes and this therapy against that therapy. We need a science which allows us to have an integrated understanding of this person. And um, there was a wonderful paper written by um, Eisenberg in 1986, the British General Psychiatry. It was called Mindless and Brainless Science. And uh, that was very influential I me. Mean, it's a very clever paper because it says that's the problem that we've uh, we've got this fragmentation everywhere you look in mental health it's fragmented whether it's all the hundreds of therapies that are out there whether it's some individuals who are interested in the body but other people are not some people are right the other end of the spectrum everything is biological and nothing's so you know it's but what we don't need is either of these two sciences either a mindless science just it's all to do with body and just giving them into presence or a bodiless science yeah it's bringing it all together and how unique and tricky every single person is yeah 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 and that's why what you were saying is so important dance and yoga and all of these things the ability to ground in your body because one of the most important things as you know is learning not to fight with your own mind that's what you're experiencing not to fight with your own what you're what, what you're feeling and so on but actually to be able to work with whatever is arising for you 
It's really useful. Thank you. More training ahead of me, I fear. <laughs> but no, it's exciting. It's all exciting. And the last question I always ask guests is if you could go back to the 15 year old version of Paul Gilbert, what would you say to him? Keep going with your guitar, you would make a lot more money. (laughs) (laughs) Go to the stage. (laughs) (laughs) I think the point is when you look through life and you see all the things you worried about and what happened, I mean, some bad things happen, but you realize that most of it was. If you if I could have got if you can go back and say look you know you'll have ups and downs but it'll be like the weather it's fine it's just just learn from them and pass through you know because sometimes you get very desperate about things don't you but hindsight is you know I think my fifteen year old would say well, it's all right for you you're an old bastard now <laughs> what do you like. So there's telling that to your fifteen year old self and your fifteen year old self hearing it and embodying it not a chance I wish so and if people listening to this want to follow your work what book do you think people should read first of your work you've written quite a few books I think probably the easiest one to get get into and it's got exercise and everything is mindful compassion which I wrote with a buddhist monk that's probably the easier one I've been listening to it on audible I listen to the compassionate mind but oh wow there you are you've got it yeah isn't that I've got them all that's incredible Sarah, we'll have to send you a copy of the new book, which comes out next week, which is on the compassion focused therapy, which is actually, I've got it here. It's really, really big, but it is a reasonable dip in book. So I wrote the first part of the book, The Science, and then we have about 16 other chapters with different authors talking about depression and anxiety and chair work and group work. And it's called Compassion Focused Therapy Clinical Practice and Applications. It's me and Gregoris Simnos. Yeah, we're very pleased. Three years. I mean, it's just. But, uh, it's a, it's a labour of love. I love I've loved writing it. Thank you so much for this hour we spent together. I've really really enjoyed it. I could ask you, oh gosh, another keep you going for another couple of hours. But thank you so much, Paul. Really enjoyed it. My pleasure, Sarah. Thank you for listening to Ask a Therapist. For more information about the CBT Journal, visit my website at sarahdreese.co.uk. You can also sign up to download your free guide to building emotional resilience delivered straight to your inbox. You will then also receive regular newsletters where I share my blog posts, podcasts and tips and strategies for better mental health and psychological resilience. Don't forget to review and subscribe to the podcast and you can also share episodes on social media using the hashtag AskTheTherapist. This episode was written and presented by me, Sarah Rees, and edited by Big Tent Media and produced by Emily Crosby Media.